You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Think of someone really, really sinful. Don't look at them if they're here. Just think about them. And we laugh. But on a more serious note, we all have people who we think are particularly terrible. We have enemies. Maybe it's someone you're afraid of. Maybe it's someone you don't like. And my question for you is who do you think would reach out to that person? Who would lift up the ones we're tempted to look down on, the people we fear, the people we've given up on? Who would love the people we're tempted to hate? Turn to Jonah 1. Jonah chapter 1. We're looking at an account many of us may be familiar with. Many people have heard of Jonah and the infamous big fish. Uh, Maybe you grew up in church in your Sunday school, had the flannel graph whale with a little prophet running away. You know, the story may be familiar. And familiarity can bring about a coziness, a casualness that we actually shouldn't feel if we're reading this right. After all, it's easy to look at Jonah and think, what a bad prophet. But imagine September 12th, 2001, the day after 9-11. Imagine God coming to you and saying, I want you to go to the Middle East and tell those people about my mercy. Let them know that if they repent, I will relent and forgive, and they can be a part of my family, the very same family you are a part of. Imagine hearing that on September 12th. And I don't think this is an abstract exercise because you know where ancient Nineveh is, right? It's in the northern part of Iraq, opposite the city of Mosul, 220 miles northwest of Baghdad. Iraq, Mosul, Baghdad. Given world events and terrorism over the last decades, these are not places that inspire thoughts of love and mercy in the hearts of many people around the world. And we can bring the matter even closer to home. Imagine growing up African-American in Birmingham in the 50s or 60s. Imagine God calling you to go and minister to the people who live in Vestavia Hills where I and many of you live now. Imagine God calling you to the very people who used to be your neighbors but wanted an exclusive community that your kids couldn't play in. Many of those people, white people, left their schools, left their church buildings, and built their own city that stood over the mountain as a middle finger of sorts to those with darker skin they did not desire to associate with. Imagine God calling you to minister mercy to them. How would you respond? 
friend, on September 12th or in segregated Birmingham, are you telling me that you'd run into the community of your enemies bearing good news of mercy and forgiveness? Beloved, I ask this question because it's easy to be shocked at Jonah's sin, and we'll see it soon. And the examples I've laid out, they don't justify it. Nothing ever justifies sin. But I do hope these examples personalize it, in a sense, humanize it. Friends, Jonah was called to minister to Nineveh, a major city of the Assyrians who were historically cruel and longtime enemies of Israel. Israel was God's people, and Jonah was an Israelite, a Hebrew. The Assyrians, though, took pride in war, in executing, impaling, flaying the skin of prisoners and beheading. Now, at the time Jonah is called to minister, the 8th century BC, uh, the Assyrians had actually grown pretty weak. There was relative peace between them and Israel, and Israel was doing pretty well. So why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, the text doesn't say. Uh, Maybe Jonah knew of past tensions between Israel and Assyria. Maybe Jonah knew about future tensions. Uh, There were other prophets at the time like Hosea and Amos who prophesied against wealthy and mighty Israel because Israel was sinning a lot. And so these prophets told Israel that judgment was coming for them by way of Assyria. As soon Assyria would grow strong again and attack Israel, maybe Jonah knew of that prophecy and he didn't want his future enemies to be right with God. Now, these are all speculations I'm getting from different context clues in the Bible. But at the end of the day, it's hard to make sense of Jonah's reluctance, his sin, because sin doesn't make sense. It's not rational. That said, maybe the truth about Jonah's reluctance toward Nineveh isn't so complicated. Maybe Jonah was in wealthy, strong Israel and had flat-out prejudice. Despite God making clear to Abraham that he intended to bless all nations through him, maybe Jonah had a certain ethnic pride that said, we're Israel and they're not. Maybe Jonah was in a segregated vestavia of sorts, and he was called to inner city Birmingham. Who knows? God does. And God calls Jonah. Friends, who would love the people we're tempted to hate? Our text has three answers for us, and here's the first. The surprising God. Who would love the people we're tempted to hate? Answer number one, the surprising God. Who would love the people we're tempted to hate? Answer point number one, the surprising God. At this point, we'll cover verses one to three of chapter one. Read with me. And if you're new to the Bible, that big number is the chapter. That little number is the verse. Chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Pause. Friends, 
We're at the beginning of our story, and notice how it feels like the beginning of our Bibles. After all, what does Genesis begin with? God and his word. Here in Jonah, God is calling his messenger, Jonah, and he does that through his word. So in my newsletter this past week, I echoed what Pastor Dever shared with us a few weeks ago, that faithful proclamation of God's word is central to the church. And that's not because the proclaimer himself is central. It's not because this is a concert and you guys are just an audience and I'm performing. No, this is an active congregation, an active family. We're all working, listening, discerning what's being taught. Friends, God's word is central because it's his word that starts everything. It's his word that gives life. So in Genesis 1, God spoke and the universe is born. In Hebrews 1, it says the Lord upholds the universe by the word of his power. And not just creation, but new creations in Christ. Our faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The word of Christ. In Ezekiel 37, what is it that gives the dry bones life? The word of the Lord. What does the Lord do when he calls forth Lazarus from the dead? He speaks, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus lives. And so it is no small thing, beloved, when in verse 1, look with me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This isn't a casual text message. God is sending Jonah. This is the summons of the king. And it comes to Jonah whose name literally means dove, like that bird who'd signal to Noah the flood of God's judgment was over. Jonah was to go deliver a message of hope. We see his assignment in verse 2. The Lord calls Jonah, saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The language of our text is stunning. And Nineveh's evil is so great, it came up before God. It's piled up sky high. You remember earlier I talked about the Assyrians and the sins of violence they were known for. Oh, notice, beloved, the Lord sees evil and cares about it. God is saying, Jonah, tell those people what they're doing. It's not okay. And how we know what's okay with God is ultimately from his word. Our consciences help us, but we're so messed up that even our consciences can be messed up. But God's word is perfect. A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And it tells us about the surprising God who doesn't just see evil, he draws near to evil people. Beloved, we we often pull back from evil folks. We think stay away from them. But the holy God comes near. Does that not surprise you? Brothers and sisters, because God draws near to the wicked, it makes sense that in his word we find commands that may surprise us. 
like love your enemy. Friends, how we hear from God is through his word, however surprising it may be. Love your enemy. Go to Nineveh. Jonah must have been like, go where? Go to who? But this is God. And he operates differently than we might expect, especially when he is showing mercy. And so God speaks differently than we might expect. And we don't have to wait for a mystical call to hear his voice audibly like Jonah. We have God's word. You don't have to wait for permission to love your enemies. You have God's word. So don't wait on a word from God. Read the word of God. After all, as the hymn says, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. And that is exactly what Jonah didn't do. Verse 3, look with me. The Lord calls, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Uh, Friends, our story seems to quickly collapse. Look at verse 3 again. It starts out okay. Look with me. Verse 3, it says, but, okay, Jonah, okay, still good. Jonah rose, great. That's what God said to do, arise. But Jonah rose to flee, the text says. Ah, okay. There's the problem. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Friends, to summarize, Jonah is trying to run away from God. Joppa is literally the opposite direction of Nineveh. And Jonah is so desperate to not go there that he would pay money. Did you see the text said he paid the fare to go? Jonah would finance his sin to get away from his God. Did you notice how our text repeated that saying that Jonah was going away from God's presence? Friends, we can be in the hardest place, but if God is with us there, it's the best place to be. And we can be in the best place. But if God isn't with us there, it's the worst place to be. The whole summary of God's judgment in the Old Testament, whether it's Adam and Eve sinning or Israel sinning, the whole summary of God's judgment is that they are driven from God's presence. Brothers and sisters, in not wanting to speak God's judgment to another nation, Jonah brings God's judgment on himself. As he sails away, or does he? You see, the problem, brothers and sisters, is that Jonah wasn't just running from the surprising God. He was also running from the sovereign God. Point number two, the sovereign God. Who would love the people we're tempted to hate? Answer number two, the sovereign God. Who would love the people we're tempted to hate? Answer point number two, the sovereign God. This point will cover verses 4 to 13. Follow as I read. 
Jonah tries to run away, but the Lord, verse four, but the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's pause there. To summarize, friends, a terrible storm has come. You know it's bad because the mariners, the sailors, the people who've seen lots of storms, they're afraid. And yet the sailors aren't the main point. God is. Beloved, from God sending the flood in Noah's day, to God bringing the people through the Red Sea in Moses' day, to God calming the storm that Becca read about in the disciples' day. We are taught the lesson that God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's in control over creation as seen in the winds and the waves. After all, who sent the storm? Verse 4 says clearly, the Lord hurled. He threw it like a baseball. Friends, nothing in life is random. God makes no mistake. This is his storm. It's his judgment. And we've seen the sin of God's prophet, and now we see the storm of God's judgment. And the sailors are terrified. Verse 5 says they start throwing cargo overboard, and I love that detail, throwing cargo overboard. It's such a good picture that you can try to get rid of all your baggage, but unless you repent and turn to the Lord, you will sink in the storm of God's judgment. But everyone on the ship is just trying to survive. Everyone except Jonah, who went into the belly of the boat and was, the text says, fast asleep. Friends, Psalm 1 gives us a clear picture of what it looks like to be stuck in sin. It says, happy is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And you see in that a progression of getting stuck deeper in your sin. You're walking, then you're standing, then you're sitting in your sin. And brothers and sisters, that's a picture of Jonah. He ran from the Lord, walked and stood on that boat. He went down in it and now is sleeping in his sin. And the captain of the ship, I love this, verse 6, says to Jonah, what do you mean? Get up. Friends, from the captain of the universe, God, to the captain of the ship, everyone is telling Jonah, arise, get up. And I wonder if there's someone here tonight who God is telling to get up out of your sin. Like he told Jonah. And can you imagine Jonah's face when he was awoken? 
I mean, Jonah must have gone to sleep with confidence. I bet he felt invisible and invincible. Not even God can find me down here. Or maybe he thought, I'll run away. God will use someone else, and that'll be that. But God wasn't finished with Jonah yet. It's a reminder, friends, of something uh, Dustin said when the staff was praying through the this text earlier this week, Dustin said, God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us in our sin. Like a good father, God will discipline his kids, not in an eternal sense. We're not eternally condemned or cast off, but like a good parent, he will correct us at times. Now, because I'm a pastor, I know that when I say that, some of you will start seeing every hard circumstance in your life as God's corrective judgment. And indeed, there's a category of severe mercies, a hard hardship that God uses to wake you up out of your sin. And these mercies are really hard, but they're not as hard as going to hell, right? So don't focus on the severe part, focus on the mercy part. But that said, there is such a thing as a severe mercy. But here's the thing. In your life, these are rare and really clear. Meaning, if you drive home tonight and you get a flat tire, you shouldn't think, oh, oh man, is this because I lied to my roommate at breakfast? Beloved, no. Jesus goes out of his way in passages like John 8 to make clear that not every terrible thing in your life is because of your sin. You know, if you have questions about hard circumstances God has sovereignly put you in, talk to a godly friend you trust. Talk to an elder. Don't try to read the tea leaves. You'll wear yourself out, and you're not smart enough to figure it out. God, the sovereign, is the only one who knows all the factors. And Jonah had a uniquely clear call that he clearly violated. So, beloved, don't map his life one-to-one on top of yours. We're not exactly in the same boat as Jonah, but the sailors were. And in the panic of the moment, they're just trying to figure out what is going on. So they said to one another, verse 7, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Friends, the sailors, still ignorant of God, try to figure out why this storm is happening. I mean, have you ever had something in your life and you asked, why? Why, God, is this happening? The sailors cast lots to see who's holding the short straw. Of course, it falls on Jonah. 
Uh, by now, we know that's not random. Today is the 16th, and in Proverbs 16:33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Friends, down to the dice rolled on the deck, God is sovereign. So the lot falls on Jonah, and he fesses up to the sailors. Verse 9 may be a little ironic when Jonah says he fears the Lord. But maybe this is Jonah starting to submit to God's will. Jonah says he fears the Lord, but the sailors fear for their lives. Did you notice in verse 10, it says they were exceedingly afraid. Back in verse 5, they were just afraid. And so the sailors said to Jonah, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And this is so interesting. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Friends, I say verse 13 is so interesting because the sailors clearly didn't want to throw Jonah overboard. You know, it's so ironic. The sailors, the pagans, had more regard for life than the prophet. And so the sailors rode hard to get back to dry land. Despite Jonah giving them a way out, verse 13, the sailors rode hard to get back to dry land. Beloved, there are a hundred sermons in verse 13. Because that hard rowing, that striving is a great picture of salvation by works. It's a great picture of trying to be your own savior by effort, by straining, by relying on yourself to paddle through the sea of God's judgment. Friends, surely these sailors were pulling out every sailing trick they knew to save themselves. What about you? Are you trying to save yourself in this world? Are you trying to be a better person? It's a new year, new me. Are you trying to be good enough? Friend, the reality is, try as you might, row as you might. You're still not good enough for God. None of us are. Left to ourselves, we're all drowning in God's judgment because we're all sinners. But we're all like Jonah. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to think of someone really sinful. Friend, did you think of yourself? You should have. I know it's hard to think of ourselves as sinners, but if we can be honest, we can receive the good news this passage holds out for us. Because Jonah isn't just the story about the surprising God. It's not even just the story about the sovereign God. It's the story of the saving God. Point number three, the saving God. Who would love the people we're tempted to hate? Answer number three, the saving God. This point will cover verses 14 through 17. We left off with the sailors rowing hard to get back to dry land. 
uh, because they, but they couldn't because the storm was only getting worse. Therefore, verse 14 says, they, the sailors, called out to the Lord. Notice, beloved, they weren't crying out to their gods anymore like they were in verse 5. No, no, the waters of God's judgment had shown the futility of man's idols. And just like God did in the Exodus, he would show himself through the waters to be the real and only God and the real and only hope. And so, the sailors pray. Interesting. Now, instead of rowing, these men are praying. It's natural in God's people. We pray to God. When life is good, we pray to God. When life is hard, we pray to God. Friend, do you feel overwhelmed in your life? Do you feel like you're drowning? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Sinking times are praying times. Friends, God uses our afflictions to bring us closer to him. That's what's happening to these sailors. And so they pray, starting verse 14. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. I mean, beloved, these sailors may be ignorant, but they are confessing God's sovereignty. They know who sent the storm. Look again at the end of verse 14. They pray saying, you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so, verse 15, in faith, however newfound it is, they picked up Jonah, verse 15 says, and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Just like that. Just like that. It was all better. Beloved, do you see what happened? It may have seemed so right for the sailors to have wanted to save Jonah, but they had to do what seemed crazy, what seemed foolish to be saved. The sailors would have to grab hold of the sacrifice, Jonah, if they wanted the salvation of God. Did you hear me? Friends, the sailors would have to grab hold of the sacrifice if they wanted the salvation of God. And the same is true for us. If we want to be saved out of the storm of God's judgment, we're going to have to grab hold of the sacrifice God provides. Friends, because God is just, because he cares about evil, someone is going to have to pay the punishment for our sins instead of us, on behalf of us. And the good news, beloved, is that God has provided a sacrifice for us that is greater than Jonah. The good news, beloved, is that there is indeed a sleeping prophet in the bottom of our boats. Becca read to us about him earlier, Jesus. We're going to have to grab hold of Jesus by faith, believing that he is the sacrifice that calms the sea of God's judgment. And Jesus endured the worst storm of God's judgment on the cross. Friends, not in defiance of God's will like Jonah, but in submission to it, Jesus was hurled onto that cross. Do you see him, beloved, hanging there like a criminal, 
dying in the place of sinners like you and me. Do you see him? The perfect sacrifice, the most innocent of blood. Remember, the sailors regarded Jonah as innocent, but Jesus actually was innocent. He lived perfectly, yet Jesus hung on that cross. He, like Jonah, offered up himself, and he offered up himself to bear your punishment. And he died. But the Lord did not stay dead. No, three days later, he rose, and he now offers forgiveness to anyone from any nation who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Friend, if you've not done that, tonight is the night to turn from your sins to Jesus. Don't be like Jonah, who turned from God to his sin. No, turn from your sins to Jesus. Kids, turn from your sins to Jesus. Parents, turn from your sins to Jesus. Everyone, turn from your sins to Jesus. Stop trying to throw your baggage overboard. Stop rowing so hard and come to Jesus and enjoy peace. I mean, that's what happens, right? Verse 15, the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea. Little play on words there. God hurled the storm in verse 4. The sailors hurled the prophet in verse 15. And the sea, look at the second half of verse 15 with me, ceased from its raging. You want peace? You don't get it without God. Then the men, verse 15 said, feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered, to, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Brothers and sisters, I think these vows and offerings are representative of the true repentance on the part of these sailors. If you look down at chapter 2, verse 9, vows and offering are the same kind of thing Jonah does to demonstrate his repentance. So the sailors are saved and they fear the Lord. Brothers and sisters, notice that the sea calming doesn't take away the sailors' fears. The sailors go from afraid in verse 5 to exceedingly afraid in verse 10 to exceedingly afraid of the Lord in verse 16. Their fears were replaced by a greater fear, the fear of the Lord. This is why the slave trader and sailor John Newton would write those words, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Friends, to fear the Lord is to live as if he's in charge. It's to rely on him as if he really does save. It's to honor the Lord with your life because you know he is the judge of your life. And so the sailors turn to God. And this is how God works. Jonah was like, I don't want Nineveh to be saved. God's like, it's cool. I got some Gentiles on the sea that I'd love to save. Matter of fact, they're right on schedule for redemption. Sailors, the worst, right? It's not good to talk like a sailor. Sailors are often the low of the low, but they ain't too low for God's mercy to reach down to them. The captain of the ship, we never learn his name from the text, but you better believe his name was written in the book of life. 
Beloved, God had a plan to save these men, a plan so wonderful that somehow he could use Jonah's sin to bring about their salvation. Let that bake your noodle. That's how sovereign God is. You know, it seems like some ricochet evangelism, right? The good news bounces away from Nineveh, but it lands on these sailors. Friends, praise God. He saves surprising people and he saves them in surprising ways. Jonah's rejection of God led to the Gentiles' reception of God. But we need to keep going because there is one more character we meet in our story. Kids, maybe you, it's the one you've been waiting on, the fish. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed, there's that sovereign language again, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Friends, we've seen the salvation of the sailors. Now we see the swallow of the fish. We don't know what kind of fish this was, but that makes sense because the fish is not the point. The fish is not the point. The fish is not the point. People will go to great lengths to try to make the fish the point and prove that Jonah and the Bible is a fairy tale. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, it is wonderful to have you. You might think this story is nice, but somewhat ridiculous. And I just want to highlight that both of us are operating on faith. You know, maybe you're not a Christian and you choose to believe in random particles of plasma that began the universe. I'm believing in the God who began the universe. And friends, if you can believe God created a universe, I don't think it's that hard to believe that he can send a big fish. The Bible understands all of Jonah's life to really have happened. So he was a real man, 2 Kings 14 tells us. And he really was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That's not a metaphor. Jesus pointed to Jonah being there that long as a preview of his own death and resurrection. You can read that in Matthew 12. And that's really all the text gives us about the fish because the fish is not the point. Jonah is not even the point. God is. Friends, before the book of Daniel is about the lions or Jonah is about the fish, the Bible is first and foremost about God. There comes a point as one matures in Christ when you realize the Bible isn't just a collection of incredible stories, but that it's one story about an incredible God. That's why the author of Jonah points out that the Lord hurled the storm and the Lord appointed the fish. He is trying to turn our eyes away from your hard circumstances, away from your storm. He's trying to turn your eyes to God. The point isn't what a bad prophet Jonah is, but what a good God God is. He would even use a a bad prophet. And so in Jonah, we learn about God. And that running from him doesn't work. What we learn, as Katie Ballou shared with me, that our sin doesn't stop God's work. We learn that God loves the worst and most random of us. We learn he's in charge of the winds and the waves and the whole world. 
And he wants to save people from the whole world. Beloved, Jonah is a book about God. So it's a book about love. Jonah is a book about God. So it's a book about missions. I remember the first time Hillary Holman uh, introduced me to Aiden Ryan. I remember Aiden talking about her desire to go overseas, and she said, quote, I read Romans 10, and that was enough for me. I love that. Aiden, are you here? There you are, bright red. Um, Beloved, I'm praying that some of y'all read Jonah, and it's enough for you. To go and tell some people, maybe your enemy, that God cares for them and that he cares for the nations. Isn't that what we saw last week from the book of Acts? Brothers and sisters, I really meant for the sermon last week to be a standalone sermon. But the Bible is all connected. So let me show you one last thing before we close. Look at Jonah chapter 3, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 1, verse 3. You see there that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, Joppa, Joppa. Seems like a random detail in your Bible that you probably just read right over. Well, last week in the sermon from Acts, we talked about Paul getting saved from Acts chapter 9. Well, later in that same chapter, Acts chapter 9, we see Jesus' disciple Peter doing some incredible things. He raises a little girl from the dead. Peter tells her, like Jonah was told, arise. And she opened her eyes, Acts 9.40 says. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days. Beloved, whether it be in Joppa or Iraq or some sailors on a boat or some knuckleheads in downtown Birmingham, God loves the world that he is in charge of. So, Let's obey his word, submit to his will, and trust in his son. Let's pray. Father, you are as loving as you are sovereign, and so we pray that we would believe that come trial or triumph, that you would love us as you love the world who you sent your son to die for. We pray in his name. Amen.